that is our prayer tonight, that your blessing would fall on us, your children, that you would defeat the powers of darkness that are assailing our souls, Father, that you would defeat the lies of the enemy tonight, that truth would liberate us, that we would hear your oracle, your voice speaking to us collectively, but also personally into our very individual being, Lord, that we will hear your voice talking to us, Lord, calling us to yourself, Lord, to put our faith and trust in you because you are trustworthy. You are faithful. You are good. You are loving. You are all-powerful. There's nothing we're experiencing beyond your scope and ability to move in a supernatural manner. And so, Father, we pray tonight, open up our hearts, Lord, that we might leave this place Maybe we've come discouraged, but we might leave encouraged. That we might have come distressed, but that you would comfort us tonight. Lord, I pray that you would speak words of hope and life in our places where we feel disintegrated, broken, distressed, and anxious. And we just thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of Mark. You just saw that little clip. We've been doing a series out of this book. And, I, you know, it's interesting. Um, some of you may know Pastor John Piper. He shares and writes quite a bit. And he shared this statement. It really gripped me. It says, if a man can rob you of joy, he can rob you of your usefulness. Now, that's a very powerful statement, folks. And just think about what he's saying there. You know, it's very easy to have things occur into our lives. People say things, circumstances come into our lives, and pretty soon, you know what? We've lost a sense of joy. We're now struggling. We feel frustrated. We feel like giving up. We've lost a measure of hope. And all of a sudden, we get so discouraged, we give up and we quit. And that's so true. I see that happening all the time. Some of you understand what I'm talking about. You go, what's the point of going on? You know, I'm struggling. I'm trying to do the right thing. But I just, it just, no matter how hard I try, it just doesn't seem to make a big difference. Well, William Wilberforce was a man who knew the joy that came from a vital relationship with Christ. He was a man of great personal endurance. As a matter of fact, as a member of the British Parliament in the 17 and early 1800s, he was elected 11 times from the age of 24 to the age of 70, uh, 21 to the age of 74. Wilberforce battled for the abolition or the end of the slave trade. Some of you have probably seen that a movie, Amazing Grace, it's worth watching, tells his story a little bit. He battled for 46 years to abolish the slave trade. Now you have to understand why it was so difficult because all the other nations were practicing it and there was a lot of pressure in England to maintain this because they saw it as a means of profitability. You know, cheap labor, right? Slave labor. And so it was very difficult. Anytime you tackle a giant called money, you're really dealing with a major problem. It's, you know, one of the things that Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon or money. And a lot of people do serve money, and there's a battle that goes on. And so Wilberforce was actually challenging his nation. He was trying to be the voice of God's moral voice speaking into the consciousness of a nation, telling them that what they were doing was wrong and that God wouldn't, can't honor that and God would bless them if they took the step and did the right thing. His life was threatened many times, but he persisted. Some of you may know the name John Wesley. He was the founder of Methodism, great revival during that time. When Wesley was 87 years old, he wrote to Wilberforce and said, unless God has raised you up, 
this very thing, for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. And certainly that would have been true, but Wilberforce stuck to it. You know, 46 years, can you imagine the challenge of trying to overthrow this immense evil that was in, you know, enslaving the hearts and minds of people? You know, not just the slaves, but also the slave owners. I mean, they're just as messed up as ever. Talk about an unhealthy situation. Two years after Wesley's letter, Wilberforce wrote in his, in his own, uh, wrote in a letter, I daily become more sensible that my work must be affected by constant and regular exertions rather than by sudden and violent ones. In other words, he recognized with 15 years to go in the first phase of the battle, he knew that only a marathon mentality rather than a sprint would prevail in the cause. Six years later in 1800, after, on his 41st birthday, he re rededicated himself to, the, to his own calling when he prayed this beautiful prayer, O Lord, purify my soul from all its stains. Warm my heart with the love of thee. Animate my sluggish nature. I like that statement. <laughs> What's he saying? He's saying, God, you know, there's a tendency to wear down. Sometimes it's hard to do the right thing and keep doing it. So he said, you know, when we want to slow down and give up, he said, Lord, animate. Give me the life. Help me to continue this tremendous battle. Fix my constancy and volatility that I may not be weary in well-doing. How many can say that you've at times gotten weary in doing the right thing? Isn't that true? Don't we get that way? And the scriptures teach us, don't be weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you do not give up. You don't faint, you don't quit, you know? Sometimes you don't see anything for long seasons of time. So here in our text today, we're gonna see Jesus do something very powerful. He's actually walking on water. This is, you know, supernatural. It is a miracle. It's not something everybody does. Let's face it, you know, unless you live in Alberta and it's January, you're not going to do a lot of walking on lakes, right? And we're talking about, you know, Galilee where it never freezes over and Jesus is going to walk on the Sea of Galilee. The question I'm raising today, and we're going to see it in our text, how do we handle life strains? How do we handle the exertion, the daily grind, the, the, the torment, the hassle, the frustrations of doing something? And you know, you feel like there's this opposition to accomplishing what needs to be done. So we're going to look at two truths tonight as it relates to the strains of life found in our text. The first truth that we need to understand in the strains of life is that God is aware of our plight. God knows our circumstances. He knows our situation. Uh, often he is the one that directs us even into the challenges we're faced with, and we're gonna see that. He sees the difficulty we're battling. He's aware of this current situation you're in. He sees what's happening in our lives, and I'm gonna give you the good to news tonight. He's about to do something. God will come to you in a way that you least expect it at a time you least expect him. And that is, I think, the encouraging part of this message. The one who is about to do this thing, he's going to do something about it. But I think we need to understand that just because we're doing God's will, we're doing what God wants us to do, does not mean that it will always be smooth sailing. I think that's a myth we develop as Christians. We feel like, you know, if I come to God and do what he wants, you know, everything's going to work out. It's all going to be smooth sailing from this point on. 
And I want to shatter that myth because that's probably not what's going to happen in your life. As a matter of fact, as we're going to look at our story tonight, getting into the boat that Jesus tells his disciples to get into actually creates part of their dilemma. He actually sends them and, he, you know, and they actually end up in the storm. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus actually compels his disciples to leave quickly while he dismisses the crowd and slips away. Look at Mark chapter 6 and verse 45. Now, I'm going to just say something. I will move my PowerPoint to other scriptures, but I won't for chapter 6 of Mark. I want you to be there. I want you to see these texts with your own eyes. Okay, so let's look at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Number one lesson. Jesus was the one that got them into the boat. How many see that? Jesus was the one that was directing them. So, you know, what happens as a result of them being in the boat is because Jesus asked them to go in that direction. And so, you know, we could honestly say that Jesus sends them into harm's way. Now, that's a very foreign thought to us. We just go, what in the world? Do you mean Jesus is going to lead us in his will and that when we hit his will, it's not all going to be smooth sailing? And the answer is, that's right. But I'm going to give you a little premise here that you need to hang on to. Uh, and here it comes. Whatever we may, when, what we may not understand about life's strains and challenges is that they are actually keeping us from greater temptation. I want to bring this out to you. That even though Jesus will bring us to a place of challenge, he's actually keeping you from a greater temptation. Let me just pull this apart a little bit, okay? Going back to this, immediately Jesus made his disciples. You know that word made is a very forceful word in the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament. We have it now in, in, translated into English. But when, it, when that word comes out, Jesus made them, it's actually he compelled them. He forced them. Now, he didn't physically pick them up and put them in the boat, but there was something about Jesus as he's communicating to them that gave them a sense of urgency that they needed to get their act together and get into that boat and head out across the water. And you say, why is that? Well, I'll give you a little background to the story. Some of you that were here two weeks ago, anybody here two weeks ago when I actually talked about the feeding of the 5,000? Anybody happen to be here? If you haven't... Uh, you can listen to this message on a podcast. You can download our app here. Or you can download it on the web, and you can listen to the sermon. I make an argument, and I want you to follow this argument. I'm going to make it again tonight, simply this, that when Jesus fed the 5,000 with the, you know, the little boy's lunch, you know, the loaves and the fishes, that miracle was a revelation of who he is. He's actually God in the flesh. But it was actually a more significant miracle, and there were a lot of things happening that you and I don't see, because usually what we do when we read the Bible is we create our own context. Do you know what I mean by a context? You know, we, we actually, we look at the story and say, isn't that neat? People are coming to hear Jesus, and it's kind of like a Sunday school picnic, and all the families are there, and Jesus is dividing up the food. It's just a happy-go-lucky situation. I want to shatter that for you right now. That's not what was happening. I want you to get a picture that you're living in Nazi Germany, not Nazi Germany, you're living in occupied Europe during Nazi Germany. And you're being oppressed, you have no freedom. 
And how many know that in a country like that, people rise up and try to exert freedom? And we see that all the time when people are being oppressed by another country. Isn't there a sense that people want to be free? How many kind of sense that? That people resent being oppressed by other people. People resent having somebody take away your freedom and tell you how to think and tell you how to live and tell you what to do and you have no freedom in your life. And there's a resentment that builds up and people eventually feel oppressed and there's an anger and a resentment, especially when people, you know, abuse Use you and brutalize you and take advantage of you and you have no rights. Nobody seems to care about you. And after a while, anger starts building up and resentment builds up and bitterness builds up. And you know, somebody's you know, sister gets raped or somebody's brother gets killed or you know, and there's no justice in the system and you start getting angry. Right? You can begin to feel this thing. Are you getting a feel for what the context is? Well, Israel or the Jewish people were under Roman oppression. We forget this story, and they were under the Herodian reign. And so there was a movement, especially in Galilee, to be free from Roman oppression. It was called, uh, they were called zealots. And uh, they were freedom fighters, and they were national heroes. They, were, they felt like they were being patriotic. They felt like they were trying to raise up their country to take its rightful place among the nations and overthrow the shackles of Rome. And so there was this nationalistic oppressive move, you know, this, this movement you know, to free themselves from the tyranny and oppression of Rome. Think about it now. Why would 5,000 men be wandering in an uninhabited area? You ever thought, don't you think that's a little strange? How many think that might be a little weird? You know? Now, where do you come up with this stuff, Pastor? Well, just bear with me. You know, in John's Gospel, it says this, Jesus, knowing that the intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. See, Jesus knew that these people were looking for someone they could galvanize around. They were looking for a popular figure. They wanted to make Jesus their leader. As a matter of fact, part of the messianic dream of the Jewish people was that God would send a deliverer. You know, earlier in their history, they were the Maccabeans. How many know anything about the history of earlier Israel, the intertestamental period with the Maccabeans? Anybody know about this? Yeah, they were freedom fighters. They rose up and they threw off, you know, the Seleucid Empire, and they actually exerted their independence, and they were considered heroes. And so they'd had this in their past history. Now they had Roman oppression. They were hoping that the Messiah would actually be someone who would physically liberate them from this Roman bondage. You have to have that context for the story. And so Jesus now, knowing what's in the heart of men, recognized that what they were going to try to do to him was actually, when he did this miracle, they could see that Jesus had the ability to bring people together. How many know you want to have a leader that can draw people? You need that kind of a popular figure, you know? And... uh, that's why Herod, some why, I, I preached this two weeks ago, why he had John killed. Part of the reason was fearful of a popular uprising. And so now Jesus is on the scene. People are coming to him. He's healing. Now you and I are looking in hindsight. We know that Jesus has a mission, but his mission is not to set people free from Roman oppression. Jesus' mission is totally different. Jesus' mission is to set people free from a greater oppression, one that is an eternal oppression with humanity, and that's the oppression that sin brings in all of our lives, and it transcends culture. It transcends gender. It transcends time. Jesus was going to deal with the ultimate problem. Problem, which was the problem of evil and sin. 
And so rather than raise up this nationalistic rebellion against Rome, which, by the way, 30 years later, the Jews did rebel against the Romans, and look what happened. From 66 A.D. to 73 A.D., it was a bloodbath. Jerusalem was leveled. You know, women were raped. Kids were mutilated. It was terrible. How many know wars are a brutal thing? It's an awful thing, and Jesus knew that. And so Jesus was not connected to that mission. Jesus had a higher mission. But his disciples were still locked into the same messianic hope as all the other people. And so Jesus now was concerned about them being enticed with the wrong mission. So he's now compelling them to get into the boat and move them out of there while he himself would dismiss this crowd. You know, it's very fascinating in the Greek language. The one little thing that I've learned studying the language, I'm not a scholar, I don't know it, I can't tell you a bunch of words, but I have great Bible helps, and I can go into the lexicons and dictionaries, and one of the little things I've learned is that, you know, based on the tenses of verbs, the author is giving you their, what would we call their um, intent. They're trying to get you to focus based on the literal uh, verb you know, like an active verb is more intensive than a passive verb, okay? Now, it's interesting in this first verse, the active verb, the one that Mark wants us to focus in on is not the fact that Jesus is compelling the disciples in the boat. It's the fact that Jesus is gonna dismiss this crowd. Why does he wanna dismiss this crowd? He does not want them to rise up in rebellion. He wants them to, to you know, to disperse. He wants them not to move in that wrong direction, yeah, that's one of the reasons why he wept over Jerusalem, because he could foresee that this spirit was within the hearts of these people to be free, and they were going to do some dramatic things, and they were going to literally, physically fight against an enemy, and he knew they would be defeated by the Romans. All right, let me just move on here. So... Uh, James Edwards, who is a biblical New Testament scholar, relates this. He said, Jesus wanted to be rid of the disciples so he could dismiss the crowd by himself. Why? The disciples are not unsusceptible to the messianic contagion of the crowd. The disciples are reluctant to leave. The apparent sense is that Jesus must expeditiously remove them from the scene in order to persuade the crowd to disperse peaceably and thus avert a revolutionary groundswell. I'm, I'm basically quoting the scholar, but I've already described all of that for you. All right, let me just move on. So the greater danger for the disciple is to embrace the wrong understanding as to the mission of Jesus. Now, how many know that when we begin our journey as a Christian, we usually have the wrong understanding? You know, what we think is that God, God's gonna save me from all my sins, and he's gonna do everything I ever wanted. You know, it's almost like God becomes the genie in the bottle. You know the genie that you ask for three wishes and get anything you want? And so often when we start as a new Christian, we start our prayers, and you know, God's very gracious, and he just answers these amazing things, and we're just praying, and we get amazing answers. How many kind of notice that? And then we start journeying a little further, all of a sudden the answers don't come as dramatically, and all of a sudden there's no answer, and we think, well, you know, what happened? Did I do something bad? You know, is God punishing me? You know, and what God is doing is weaning us off like a newborn baby from the mountain milk of the mother so he can actually help the child develop and grow up. And so you and I have to grow up. We have to move from being very self-centered to becoming unselfish. And how many know that's a very difficult road to travel? 
You know, because some of us, you know, we are quite self-centered. And to move us away from being a self-centered person to an unselfish person is a challenging road. As a matter of fact, to get to the place where you and I say, you know what, it's no longer about me anymore. And I, I'm, not, I'm only interested in doing one person's will. And it's not mine. It's God's. That takes a journey. That's not going to happen overnight. That is a journey. And we're all on that journey. And sometimes we battle that in our souls. It doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian. Okay, so Jesus now, we read here, dismisses the crowd, and what does he do? He goes up into the mountainside by himself. Now Mark only shows three times in his gospel Jesus praying, and he's praying alone. And uh, I was gonna say this, it's interesting that Jesus is not motivated by uh, popular opinion. How many know that's the truth? So he can, he's able to move away from all the desires of this great crowd and just, you know, he's going to stick to his own, his own mission because he knows that their mission is going to bring great sorrow. But his mission is going to bring great hope and great deliverance. And the only person that's going to lose their life is himself instead of all these other people. Now, we need to understand that Jesus prays for us at all times and sees the current challenges we're facing. Look at verse 46. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, most of the scholars believe that Jesus prayed for himself. And I don't think that's wrong, by the way. You know, some people think, oh, if you pray for yourself, that's selfish. I don't believe that. I think you need to pray for yourself before you can do much in life. You know, each prayer that you're gonna find in Mark's gospel is at night in a lonely place. Each finds the disciples removed from him, failing to understand his mission. And in each situation, Jesus faces a formative decision or a crisis. As a matter of fact, following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus reaffirms by prayers calling to express his divine sonship as a servant rather than as a freedom fighter against Rome. In other words, the temptation to do it the humanity way, Jesus resists. You know, there's a lot of pressure on people to do certain things. Isn't that true? And when you're a leader, there's, there's pressure comes on you to do things. Everybody wants to take a shortcut. Right. And you know what? God is not in the shortcut business usually. As a matter of fact, I will tell you, it takes a long time to build a saint. You know, in our culture, we're not, we're not great saint builders because we're the microwave generation. We think we can just pe put people in the microwave and pop it in for a minute and boom, instantaneous saint. It doesn't work that way. You know, becoming a saint is like jumping in the crock pot, you know, on low. It takes a long time for us to really grow and develop. So Jesus is now praying. And then it says, but I believe that Jesus is also praying for his disciples. I think, he, you know, when he started praying, he said, Lord, you know, I know what my mission is. He's talking to his father. He says, Father, I know what my mission is. I'm going to stick to it. But he says, I'm kind of concerned about the disciples that they'll get it. Can you see him praying that way? Because obviously he knows they haven't got it yet. And if you read carefully through the Gospels, you know that these disciples took a while to finally figure out what Jesus was about. How many know that's true? I mean, he had to be crucified and raised from the dead before ding, 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 the lights come on. Because it's still in their minds, they're still asking him the question after he's raised from the dead, when will the kingdom be, you know, Israel you know, and the kingdom be established? They're still on that frequency. Jesus has to spend so much time pounding this message into their heads. So I'm imagining in my mind he's praying for them about this. But then I'm also noticing here in the text, in verse 47, it says, when evening came, the boat, which was now in the middle of the lake, Jesus is alone on land. He sees, it says, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Oh, isn't that interesting? 
Jesus gets them in the boat. They row out. You know, the Sea of Galilee is not a big lake, okay? So they're about three and a half miles in the middle of the lake. Oh, by the way, did I tell you, when he probably dismissed the crowd, it was probably still light out. So it's probably, you know, before early evening. Jesus is now going to come to these guys in the fourth watch of the night. In Roman time, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which is, by the way, the darkest hour of the night. So when you think about that, they have probably been rowing now at least for eight or nine hours. Now, how many know when you've been doing something for a long time and things aren't going well, it's a little frustrating? Isn't that true? And it's actually interesting, this word that the NIV translates, straining at the oars. That word straining is a very strong Greek word. It literally is usually translated when people are tormented by demons. So it's, in a sense, they're being tormented. In a sense, they're being harassed. This is a very strong language. This is a very difficult experience they're going in. They're, they're rowing against the wind. How many know that that is not an easy thing to do? How many have ever been on a lake and you've been rowing and all of a sudden a wind comes up? I've had that experience. That is a very challenging experience. And these guys are rowing for all they're worth. They've done it many, many times, but now they've been at it for hours. It's pitch black outside. You know, there's a wind, so that tells me there's waves. They're not making a lot of distance. They've gotten halfway across the lake. They're extremely frustrated, and Jesus can see them. I want you to remember that point. That's very important, because you and I sometimes are like the disciples. We're straining at the oars. We're experiencing strain. We're experiencing harassment. We're experiencing torment. We're frustrated. We're trying to get to our destination, but it just seems like there's so much opposition to it, we're just not getting anywhere. Anybody experience that? Anybody relate to that? Yeah. Well, what I find fascinating here is that if Jesus, you know, I was reading this this morning and it really hit me as I was, I'm working, you know, I'm thinking about the sermon. And I'm in my prayer time and I'm reading from the New the Holman Christian Standard Bible and he says, everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. So, you know, there's a lot of things we do in life. They don't really amount to a lot. They're not sinful, but they're not really moving things forward, okay? But then the next verse says, no one should seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Now, when I read something like that, it says to me that if I do this, you know, if I'm not worried about myself and I'm thinking about others, I'm becoming like whom? I'm becoming like Jesus. So that tells me that when Jesus is praying, he's not just thinking about himself. When Jesus is looking at his disciples, he's not just thinking about himself, he's thinking about them. We need to know that when God is seeing us straining at the oars, if I can use that expression for our lives, I want you to know he's thinking about you. You need to know that. Uh, He's deeply concerned, I believe, about our heart attitude and the direction of our lives. He's concerned about what you're about. He's concerned about what makes you tick. He's concerned about the direction you're faced in. He's concerned about what your life purpose is. He's concerned about the energy that you're spending on what. He's concerned about those things, just like he was these early disciples. And how many know that they needed to understand the mission of Jesus? How many think this was kind of important that they got his message? 
that they understood his mission. Why? Because if they didn't get this, you and I wouldn't be here today. There would be no church. Because Jesus was developing these people as the leaders for the future of the church. And if they didn't get the message and they didn't get the mission, there would be no church. And folks, I will say this to us today, that if we don't get the message and we don't understand the mission, we will not impact our culture. And you know, a lot of us bemoan and wail and cry about how things are in our world today, but I say stop looking at the people that don't know Jesus and don't know any better and look at ourselves and say, what are we doing about it? Because that's where it needs to start. So we can be very critical of other people, very judgmental of other people, and that's all wrong. I think we have to take a hard look at ourselves and say, God, do I understand the message and do I get the mission? i got to ask myself that question. Okay, number two. He was also praying for them as they were now struggling against the winds on the lake, rowing furiously but moving ever so slowly. And Ken Hughes says it this way. The human tendency during difficulty is to imagine the face of God with blind eyes. In other words, God doesn't see my situation. In other words, when I'm going through a hard time, I wonder if God really cares because he doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. How many have ever felt that way? I'm not saying that's reality, but we might feel that way. You know, especially when you're a new Christian, you're still learning, you know. You can read words, but, you know, we always say actions speak louder than words. If God really loved me, he'd do something about this. Come on now. You have thought that. Right? Come on, let's be honest. But this text teaches the very opposite. Followers of Christ in the storm are special objects of the omniscience. That means God's all knowledge, compassion, and care. This ought to bring great comfort for those of us who are experiencing difficulty because of our commitment. By the way, they were in the boat because they were committed. They were in the boat because they were obedient. They were in the boat doing God's will when the wind came. Folks, Better to be in the boat in the will of God, struggling against opposition and adversity, than to be disobedient to God and to be endangered moving away with the crowd with the same mentality, I don't get the message, I don't get the mission. You know, I'm really convinced one of the reasons why God doesn't make it easy for us is because if he did, it would destroy us. Do you know what I notice? I've done a little bit of reading in my day. And I've studied enough about history and civilizations to know this, that the civilization on the ascendancy, when it's developing, they're struggling, there's difficulty, there is sacrifice. Isn't that true? How many young couples, they start out with nothing, they just love each other, there's struggle, there's difficulty, they're battling the, all the odds against them. But you know what? There comes a point. When all that struggle, stuff, toil, sacrifice, you get to the zenith, you get to the top, and then you start coming down the backside. When a civilization is on the downside, you know what starts happening? They take things for granted. There's no more sacrifice. They live with an entitlement. They've got the benefits of the previous people who have sacrificed for them. They're living in luxury. They have more free time. And cultures that are affluent, that have more free time, get into more trouble. So sometimes our difficulty is God's disguised blessing to keep us from a lot of bad things and getting into bad things. 
You know, sometimes people say, Pastor, did you get into trouble this week? I go, I'm too busy. I don't have time for it. You know what I'm saying? How many, know, how many can relate to this? I have to be good. I don't have a choice. You know, I get paid for being good, right? <laughs> you know, my life is not my own. You can talk to my wife. I have all these crazy demands on my time and all kinds of stuff. And I'm going, boy, I have to be good. I don't have a choice. I'm too busy. It's, too, it's hard to get into trouble when you're this busy. You know, I, you can. I'm just being facetious. But you know what I'm getting at? There's a sense that cultures that are struggling to get ahead are so busy trying to get, you know, look at some of these cultures just trying to feed their families. Do you think that they're worried about all of the things that we're harping on over here in the West? The people that are struggling in the third world, do you think they're, 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 you know, they're struggling to feed their families and just provide some measure of education and here we are whining and carrying on over here and talking about which trips we're going to take and, you know, I have a right to this and a right to that. Are you getting the picture? How many are getting an understanding? So God sometimes allows these things. I don't think sometimes. I think he just does. But what I find very fascinating is um, the early church needed to hear this message. You know when Mark wrote this book? Do you know what was happening in his context? In Mark's time, now 30 years have gone by. And I think that the question of where is God in my storm? Where is God in my adversity? Where is God in my straining? You know, where is, you know, these are the kind of questions that arise when we're struggling, right? And so these questions probably also troubled the community that Mark uh, was, uh, was in. He was in the church in Rome 30 years after the time of Christ. He's writing this because Peter's telling him about what had happened. And so now Mark pulls out of his memory this beautiful story about Jesus and that, you know, you know, Jesus now has left the early Christians after the resurrection and he sent them to carry the gospel across the Mediterranean to the Gentiles and to all the world. And now with the persecution under, uh, uh, under Nero and the Jewish war, you have to understand what's going on. Think about this. This is so amazing. Can you imagine being a Roman citizen in Rome following Jesus who was crucified as an insurrectionist in Judea while the Romans are now fighting the, the, the insurrection that's happening in Judea, right? 66 to 73 AD, the Romans are trying to suppress an insurrection, you know, what they consider a seditious situation. And you're a Christian in Rome worshiping Jesus who's a Jew who was considered an insurrectionist. How many think that might not be a safe thing to be doing? How many think that you might be perceived as being a seditious traitor in your own nation. Anybody see this? Now, now, how many are saying, wow, I never thought about that. Man, Mark is writing to people that are in this kind of a context, and I'm saying, yes, he is. And so the Lord, all of a sudden, it seems dangerous. When he's, when he's needed the most, he seems absent. And so in the midst of the storm, Mark reaches back into the life of Jesus for an event to use as a vehicle for the word the community needed to hear. The Lord cares, and he would come to them in the midst of their storm. Now you say, well, that's, that's an amazing word for that context, isn't it? But how about in your context? The same word comes out. Maybe you're here tonight, you're straining at the oars. Life is difficult. You've been just frustrated. You've been doing your best. You just feel like there's so much opposition against you. You need to hear the word. Jesus is gonna come to you. He's going to come to you in your storm. He's going to come in the darkest part of the night. 
He's going to come when you need him the most, and he's going to come in a way you've never thought about before. That is an amazing word. That's the message that we need to understand from this, this beautiful story that, we're, that we're, we're hearing about. So let me move on to the second truth regarding the strains of life and is that God comes in ways we least expect. You know, what I found about you know, the Lord, he generally answers prayers in ways I hadn't considered. How many have had that kind of an experience? You know, we, we all want to tell God how to do it. How many of here, you've, you've made a lot of suggestions God, this is what I want, this is how I want it, this is when I want it. You know, we've kind of told God exactly what we want, and then he doesn't do it. And we're just really ticked off at him. You know, we think like, you know, God, if you would just do this miracle, it would straighten these people out. I want to tell you something. Miracles only reveal the condition of the human heart. If you're not a believer, a miracle won't convince you. You say, how do you know that? Jesus rose from the dead, and it didn't convince people. You know, Lazarus came back from the dead, and a whole bunch of people wanted to kill Jesus. I'm just pointing out to you, miracles are just like trials. They just reveal the true condition of the human heart. That's all they do. It doesn't convince anybody. So if you think, oh God, please do this miracle, they'll believe. You know, I've seen God do miracles for non-believers and they still didn't believe. I've watched God heal non-believers and they still didn't believe. How's that? So don't be fooled by that. How many here, maybe you're a desperate parent, you struggle with wayward kids. Maybe you haven't, but that's a very painful experience. You know what's really interesting? I'm reading a book right now called The Confessions. It's by a man by the name of Augustine. Some of you might know who he is. He was a bishop. You know, it's a pastor of a church in a North African city called Hypo. You know, kind of interesting name, right? Anyways, it was during the fourth century. If you know anything about your history, in the fourth century, Christianity was now embraced by the Roman Empire. So his mother, who was a Christian, And his father, who was a professing Christian but was not much of a Christian, because you know, when everyone supposedly is Christians, how many know not everyone's a Christian? They're just Christian in name only. Do we have a few people like that in Canada, a Christian but in name only? We got a lot of those people, right? And so all of a sudden, Monica starts to realize that her son Augustine, who grew up in their home, whom she's explained to him about Jesus, he's never had a conversion experience. He's never experienced this encounter with God. It's all intellectual with him. As a matter of fact, like a good parent, her and her husband actually sent Augustine, or Augustine, or Augustine, to some of the best schools possible. He was very well educated, and he was addressing the issue of evil. And he got involved in a group called the Manichaeans. And the Manichaeans were kind of a pseudo-religion, you know, philosophy group. And they had this idea that matter was evil and spirit was good. And that really appealed to Augustine because he was pretty messed up. He was a very immoral kid. He got involved in a lot of stuff he shouldn't have been. And he liked it because in his mind, his spirit being was supposedly good. And it didn't really matter what you did with your body. So you can imagine that kind of appeals to people who want to continue to do the wrong thing. And so he embraced this philosophy, hook, line, and sinker. So Monica now is totally distressed. And how many know, like a good mom, she's going to do something about it. She's a good Christian mom, so she comes to her minister. And you know, some, some mothers, you know, they're not going to take no for an answer. So she comes to this, you know, this minister, and she says to him, she goes, I know that you help people that have difficulties. Would you go talk to my son? And he goes, no, I won't. And she got really upset with him. And so when you're reading the Confessions, it's a very interesting autobiography. It's actually a prayer. 
okay? It's in prayer form. So Augustine is now praying about his past and saying, oh God, this is what you allowed, this is what you did, it's all thank you for this, it's all laced with scripture, it's beautiful, really interesting. I've never seen anything written this way before. It's like reading a prayer, of some, but it's all framed about his life and he focuses in on certain events. And he focuses in on this event. And he said, you know, oh Lord, I thank you that this man, this priest, this minister told my mother not to come to me. And why he told her that was, he said, because he's in the full flower of the heresy. In other words, you won't be able to talk to him. He's unteachable. How many know that if you go to people at the wrong time, they don't get anything? You know what I'm saying? They're resistant. He's not ready for this message. He's embracing this bizarre idea, but he says, keep praying. He'll outgrow it. Okay? Now, it took a while, nine years, but he did finally outgrow it. But you know, some moms just don't take no for an answer. So he told her, listen, let me tell you something. When I was a boy, my mother brought me to the Manichaeans. And I grew up in it, and I studied it, and I wrote about it. I even wrote books about it, but there was a day I realized it was empty, and I left it. He said, your son will come to that point, and he'll leave it. She still would not stop bugging this guy to go talk to his son. You know, some people just don't take no for an answer, you know? But, you know, I like this guy. This, he's really smart. He has boundaries. So he says this. The, the minister says to Monica, go away now, but hold on to this. It is inconceivable that he should perish, a son of tears like yours. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, God is going to see the tears that you're shedding for your son and he will hear that cry and he will save your son. And she said, when I heard those words, and she says this to Augustine, when I heard those words, I took this as an oracle from heaven. In other words, I took it as if God spoke these words in my heart. I felt like God was saying, just keep crying. I will hear that cry. I will answer your prayer. You know what? God answered her prayer. You know, Augustine actually became one of the most famous Christians. He's probably the, aside from St. Paul, he's probably the greatest theologian the church has ever had. He's affected the church for centuries. I'm just telling you that. Now, in our text here, Jesus comes at the right moment. How many know Jesus always comes at the right moment? How many knows it, it, it just seems like he's too late? Anybody ever feel like God comes too late? I have felt that. I told God, listen, there's a timetable here, and you're in overtime. You've never talked to God like this, but I have pointed out to him, we're in overtime, God. The deadline was here, and you're, you're past due. You know? But then when he shows up, it always works out. So you know what? God's timing and my timing are different. You know, and he always takes longer. How many have experienced this? You know, I, you know, sometimes I think, what's wrong with you, God? I'm a creature of time. You, you have eternity, and you're messing with me. You're never moving fast enough for me. Anybody else relate to this? And then when God says, oh, yeah, but I'm teaching you patience, and I'm going, but how much patience can I learn, God? This is going on for years now, and you're not doing anything about it. But I think it's such a fascinating story here because it says, about the fourth watch of the night, which is like from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., he went out to them walking on the lake, and he was about to pass them by. Now, when I was reading this story, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I'm reading this, I'm going, you know, this just doesn't sound like Jesus. Why would he walk by them? 
So isn't that a great question? Why would Jesus just pass them by? You know, like I wrote that down in my first, when I read the story the first time, I wrote that as my first question. Why would Jesus pass these guys by? There's got to be some significance to that statement, wouldn't you think? And there is. I'm glad you're going to find out what it is. And it simply goes along this direction. First of all, we need to know that Jesus is a water walker. He can walk on the water in the summertime. I have to frame that for us Albertans. You know, and it says, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Now, Mark gives us a more fuller, Matthew gives us a more fuller account, talks about Peter walking out to him and all the rest. Mark doesn't do that, but he's being told the story from Peter. So what does he focus in on? He focuses on the fact that in the book of Job, now remember these people know the Old Testament. You and I don't have the same you know, rigorous mindset towards the Old Testament. Listen to what they're thinking. In Job chapter 9 and then chapter 38, there's only one person who can walk on water, and that's God himself. Listen to what Job 9, 8 says. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. There's only one water walker, and that's God himself. You go, wait a minute, Pastor, didn't Peter do it? Yeah, he only did it because Jesus sustained him and gave him the enablement at that moment to do it. But when Peter started looking at the waves, what happened to him? He was going down fast. God is a water walker. Now, this is what I like. You know, John's gospel keeps telling us that Jesus is God. Mark never does that. He just shows us Jesus is God. He basically is showing you that Jesus is able to walk on water because he's God. And so he comes to them. Isn't this amazing? Here they are battling the storm. They've been there eight or nine hours. They're in the middle of the lake. It's dead in the night. You know, just before dawn is the darkest moment, and all of a sudden Jesus starts walking on the waves. Oh, by the way, if you have wind, you have waves. See, he's walking on the waves. Can you imagine? I don't know what the kind of stride pattern Jesus had, but he's walking on the waves. This is amazing, you know? How many have ever, you know, don't you have any imagination? Haven't you gone to places where there's waves? You know, they kind of seem to come quite a distance. I don't know what the stride pattern was, but Jesus is walking on the water. This is an amazing thing. Now, if you're these guys in the boat, and somebody starts walking on the water, how many know that this is kind of a freaky experience? Because you know what? If you're in the boat... And it's dark outside, and the wind, and the waves, and the water, and somebody's walking on the waves, you start to think, this is freaky. Right? How many say, I'd probably be a little shaken up as well. I probably would have been just like those guys, freaking out, thinking I'm seeing some sort of a ghost, or some sort of an apparition coming at me. And Jesus comes as if he's going to pass by. You know, I love that expression. You know, in the book of Job, he goes on to say, when he passes me, I cannot see him. And when he goes by, I cannot perceive him. So in Job's experience, he said, God, I don't, I don't, I'm not getting the revelation of who you are in my experience. But generally speaking in the Old Testament, when we see the expression, when God passed by, it was actually a revelation of who he was. Now, I want to think of the story of Moses. Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. What did God do? He put him in the cleft of the rock, and what did he do? He passed by, covered him with his hand, and walked by him. He passed by and made a declaration, this is who I am. Read Exodus 34. Isn't that what he did? When he passed by, he declared who he was. As a matter of fact, when we read a little further in um, 
sorry, I'm going, I got to go different directions here. I'm skipping and coming back. Um, this is actually, this phrase, pass by, is charged with special force, signifying a rare self-revelation of God. We've already talked about Moses, but at Mount Horeb, the Lord revealed his presence to Elijah in passing by him. Folks, this is a very powerful place. What happens then? They're, they're terrified, and what does Jesus say to them? Take courage, don't be afraid, it is I. But you know what? We hear that expression somewhere else in the Old Testament. It is I am. See, he was declaring to them who he was. And then later on in the story, what happens is, the moment they begin to realize that it's Jesus, it says, verse 49, um, or John says this, John 6, I'm skipping a little bit. Let's go here. When they were willing to, when they were willing to take him in the boat, when they finally realized it was Jesus, they were willing to take him in the boat. Up until this point, they were afraid of him. Isn't that true in so many people's lives? We're afraid to take Jesus into our life. We're afraid. We don't know what's going to happen. But once they recognized who he was, they realized it was Jesus, they took him in a boat, and then John tells us in his gospel, immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now they had spent... Hours rowing to get halfway across the lake. Jesus gets in the boat and they're at their destination. You know what I want to tell you tonight? That when you and I finally have Jesus step into our boat, he gets us to where we need to go. Amen. A lot of us are striving, 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 striving. Jesus comes into the boat and we're where we need to be. He gets us. Now, you know... I, again, a vivid imagination. It says immediately they were at the place they need to be. That's three and a half miles away. You know what? I, I, I think that they were supernaturally conveyed to their location. It says immediately they were there. You know, I don't, the winds died down, sure. I don't think it was because of their strenuous rowing. I just don't believe that. I believe that they were just there. I think something supernatural happened. Just powerful stuff going on in the story. You know, James Edwards challenges us regarding our faith in Jesus. He says, Mark again reminds us that faith is not an inevitable result of knowing about Jesus or even of being with Jesus. Faith is not something that happens automatically or evolves inevitably. It is a personal decision or choice. I can hear about Jesus. We can talk about Jesus. But until I choose to let Jesus get into my boat, we're not going anywhere. Do you know what's fascinating? The early church saw the church as a boat. They saw the Christian life as a journey. They saw the journey as being dangerous. They saw it upon the waters, and they saw the church as the boat. And it's so important to have Jesus in the boat. Isn't that amazing? What a challenging situation. Maybe you're here tonight. You say, Pastor, whoa. This is really speaking to me. Look at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and they anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, the people recognized Jesus. You know, Mark has a way of chiding and upbraiding the disciples. He basically said, these crazy Gentiles figured out who it was, but the disciples couldn't figure him out, you know? And then a little earlier, it said that they, you know, Jesus upbraids them and says to them, he says, hey, guys, uh, listen. He said, verse 52, for they had not understood... Okay, when he climbed into the boat with them, the wind died down and they were completely amazed. That's verse 51. Verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. 
Can I just say this? That, you know, whatever Jesus is doing, we can only pick it up to the degree that we have a sensitive heart. And sin has a way of hardening our hearts. And so if we're doing our own thing and living in sin, we're missing what God is doing. What a challenge to live a sensitive life, to see what God is doing, to hear what God is saying. So maybe you're here tonight. I'm going to have a stand as we close. And you're saying, you know what? I'm straining on the oars. There's wind. There's opposition, there's intensity in my life. I feel like quitting at times. I feel it's so hard to do the right thing. But just remember, Jesus has put you where you're at. We gotta get, get a hold of this. Think about this. You say, yeah, my sin got me where I'm at. Well, that can be true too. But for most of us, you're where you're at because Jesus got you there. And sometimes when we do exactly what we're supposed to do, it's not all fun and games. Sometimes there's just challenges. There's opposition. You need to know that right up front. Get rid of this idea that if I do God's will, it'll all be easy. I don't have that in my head. <laughs> That's not the way I think. I think that generally when you're doing God's will, there is opposition. You know, and the more I do God's will, the more opposition. And the greater I do God's will, the greater the opposition. So when I don't feel opposition, I go, what am I doing wrong? So I think a little differently. I go, what am I doing wrong? But I want to just say this. Jesus is praying for you and me. I skipped over that text of Scripture in Hebrews, but it says he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's right now praying for you, and he's praying for me. And every day he prays for you and he prays for me and he prays for God's grace, the Father's grace to come into our lives. To give us the strength to do what we need to do even though he sees us sometimes straining at the oars. But what I'm here to tell you tonight is he's coming. He's coming, he sees where you're at and he's coming to you in the darkest hour in a way you least expect him. He's coming to answer your prayer in a way you have never considered before. He's coming, you know, because he, he wants you to know, number one, he cares, but he wants to make sure that you and I get the message and that we understand the mission. And sometimes we get distracted. How many know that's true? We really do get distracted, don't we? And he wants us to get it. But he's there for us. And the moment he comes on the scene, he begins to reveal himself to us. Do you know the greatest moments where I've had God meet with me have been the lowest points in my life, have been the deepest valleys where I've wondered where God was at. They were the moments I felt abandoned by God. They were the low points in my life. And all of a sudden, God came to me. And I didn't tell all the other servants. I'm going to share this story. One of the lowest points in my life as a pastor was after I'd, le I'd been pastoring here for 10 years, experienced a lot of great things here, but I went to Seattle and I went through a very difficult time. It was a very low point. And you know, I'm, I'm starting all over again. Can you imagine, you know, living your life, you know, you've put in all of this time and now you're starting back at square one. See, in 1984, I started with six people. In 1996, I started another church with six people. Started all over again. 
And now I'm preaching to just a handful of people because, you know, the first service had 20-some people, you know. We're starting over again. It's hard work to start over. How many have ever started over again? You know what I'm talking about. It's hard, isn't it? It's not easy. And it's harder because you've known the good, the good things before, but now you're starting over again. You don't have any of those resources. You've got nothing. Nothing. It's just you and God. And you know, I get a phone call one Friday. A friend of mine says, listen, and this is really amazing. I was at a Promise Keepers event in Seattle, and they were saying, you know, in 1996, next year, there's going to be a conference in Atlanta, Georgia. It's for pastors. And I knew that if I was pastoring the church, I was formally, and that would have been no problem. I went to the board and said, hey, I'd like to go to that, and they would have sent me. But I knew I was starting all over again with a handful of people, so I, did, I, just, I said, God, that would be nice, but I wrote it off. You know what? Didn't think that was a reality. So I'd forgotten all about it. And the date was coming up to it. And a week before the event, I get a phone call from a friend of mine and said, Paul, I have booked a trip to this conference. I can't physically go. I'm sick. But I'm willing to let you go in my place. We'll change everything into your name. You can go to that conference. All expenses paid. I said, okay, I'll go. I just thought, this is amazing, right? Small little church, I get there. I'm telling you, I went with, you know, with another pastor. I had such an encounter with Almighty God. I had such a meeting with God in Atlanta. I've, it's been a defining moment in my life. And while I was weeping before God, I said to him, Lord, it doesn't matter if there are thousands of people listening to me preach or one person. That doesn't matter anymore. It's, that's not about that anymore. I will commit myself for the rest of my life to share this message to whoever will listen, no matter how many. Well, I tell you, I had a real encounter with God. It's affected me very profoundly. I can tell you that right now. It's kept me going since 1996. That's a few years, isn't it? 21 years ago, had that meeting with God. Been a minister 33 years. It's a long time. I'm telling you right now, the lowest, darkest moments in our life, he'll come to you on the water. He'll come to you in a supernatural way. He will reveal himself to you. So do not lose heart. Do not faint. Do not give up. He's here for you. With every head bowed, just say, Pastor, God is speaking to me tonight. We prayed that he would. God is speaking. Raise your hand. God is speaking to me tonight, telling you, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you right where you're at, in the storm of life, in the strain of life, in the challenge of life. I'm coming to you right where you're at. You may be discouraged. You may have, you know, there's nothing more painful than to be a parent and see your kids not follow through like Monica did. I'm just telling you the good news. Do not give up. God sees your tears. God hears your heart cry. You don't have to manipulate. God will get a hold of these young people. Just keep praying. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Whatever it is, commit it to God. Let's pray. Father, you've challenged us tonight to trust you. 
You've told us that your eye is upon us. You have directed us. You've allowed the storm to come. You've allowed us to be straining at the oars. You've allowed us, Lord, to go through this experience to learn that you are there for us. You will never leave us nor forsake us, that you're praying for us, and that you will come and reveal yourself to us in our darkest hour. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.